Well, welcome to our Hills family, live at all of our campuses and those joining online. I'm excited to finish out our series in 1 Peter from uh, uh, chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we're going to wrap up the Living Hope series. If you've only been with us for the last couple weeks, or maybe if you're brand new, I'm so glad you're here. Maybe we haven't got a chance to meet. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the teaching ministers here and uh, excited as we are about to dig into this last chapter of 1 Peter. But I'm also excited about next weekend. I, I have a lot of hope and expectation for what God will do on Easter weekend. And let me add my word of encouragement uh, to each of you who call the Hills home. I can't tell you how many people I meet who are newer to our church or who place membership at our church and Easter is part of their story. That Easter weekend was the first time that they ever came to the hills. Or sometimes it's, it's talking to somebody who said, yeah, you know what? Uh, Easter was the first time that, that, that a member who happens to be my brother or my, uh, my nephew or, or uh, my, my cousin, they invited me for the very first time and it was Easter weekend. Or talking to people who say, you know what, Easter was when I got baptized. Like, Easter's a part of so many people's stories, and who knows what God might do this coming Easter, even in the next few days when you reach out to that person who's close to you but far from God. Then I'd encourage you to make that invitation this week. Well, as we, uh, as we get into 1 Peter 5, I'm going to read the first six verses. And the Apostle Peter, we're going to hear, has a charge that he's going to give to a couple specific groups inside the church. So I'll begin in verse 1 to 6. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So Peter, in these verses, speaks to two groups, and one of them is a group that has yet to be mentioned in this letter. At different points in the letter, he's addressed different, different people, but he, he addresses a new group, the, uh, the, the elders inside of the church, some of the leaders, before talking to the whole church. And even though he speaks to two different groups, the theme of what he has to say in these six verses is the same. It's all tied in with humility. So for those taking notes, you can write this down. Living hope creates humble lives. I believe that's what we see here in Peter's words. Living hope creates humble lives. As he writes, he starts with humility among church leadership. If you're newer uh, to the hills, I'm so glad that you're with us or, or listening. So I want you to know we are an elder-led church. And what that means is that, is that from the beginning of uh, the church of Jesus Christ, it was the biblical model, the earliest followers of Jesus would, would uh, appoint 
leaders, elders, shepherds, sometimes overseers uh, for, for each local congregation. They were to help oversee and care for and serve the local body. And so we have elders that serve at all three of our campuses, and that's how we are structured. But I want to I also acknowledge something that's really, really important, but also quite sensitive. Spiritual leadership of any kind has the potential for wrong to be done, for people to be hurt, and for groups of people to be taken advantage of. Now that, I want you to hear, is not unique to our time in history. And it's also not unique to our specific faith. Religions around the world, there there are stories of different types of uh, people misusing their spiritual influence or leadership or actually abusing people inside of religious contexts. That's not unique to Christianity. But Peter has some words for how Christian leaders uniquely called as shepherds and elders should serve their church. How, How is it they're supposed to carry themselves? Well, they're supposed to care for the flock willingly, not, not, not like they have to, not like it's a chore or a job, but willingly. These types of leaders should never be looking to get something out of it for themselves, but should be eager to serve. And he writes that they shouldn't be domineering, not overly controlling or lording their authority, but instead setting an example for the flock. Now, when I was reading this, I I thought, I mean, I I had a lot of names and faces come to mind of elders and shepherds who serve in our church. Now, man, you know, we're we're not a perfect church and our shepherds would say, would be quick to say, hey, we are are also people following Jesus who are not perfect. But I do see their heart for wanting to love and serve and care for our church. So I reached out to a number of, of them this week and I just asked them, would you be willing to read these verses reflect and just tell me what, what, do you, what comes to mind when you read this and what do you want your church family to know? And so a number of them shared, and I'll just share a couple quick things. First from uh, one of our elders at the Keller campus, Donnie Vaughn, he wrote and, and I texted him about looking at this passage. <laughs> he wrote back later and he said, when you messaged me, I was at the hospital visiting one of our church members. And I thought that was a great, great timing and great picture of some of what this should look like. Now, he wrote and said he hasn't been an elder as long as, as some others, and so he's learned from some of our seasoned shepherds. And here's what Donnie wrote. He, he, he said, here's some of what it looks like to care for the flock. That might be a call, might be a text, it might be a visit to the hospital or the nursing home, or maybe showing up at 4.30 a.m. at the airport to pray over students heading off on a mission trip. James Schatz, who serves here at our North Richland Hills campus, wrote, and he said, when he read these verses, he said, I see this as a charge and as an encouragement. I see a charge to lead by example. That probably looks more like doing and less like talking. It looks like being with those you lead and experiencing what they experience. At West Fort Worth, Mac Ed Swindle, one of our elders, he wrote that this passage highlights God's view of authority. God's view is one that hinges on service and sacrifice, often learned in suffering, with mutual humility between believers. And this should result in God's amazing favor for each participant. Anything less than this is outside of God's model of authority. 
He concludes writing that any pride or dishonesty are at odds with God's intended blessing for the congregation. Man, I got a lot of other great responses. I wish I had time to share them all. But let me just offer a few kind of unifying things that came from from shepherds at all of our campuses. The first was that every single one of them talked about what an honor it is to serve here at the hills, that they love you as their church family, that they pray for you and care for you. Several pointed out that Jesus, in this passage, I don't know if you noticed this, Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so in a way, every single one of our shepherds are interim shepherds. Because Jesus is the, she- is the chief shepherd who's coming back for his flock. And so when we have leaders who posture themselves this way, which by the way, let me just pause for a second. At all of our campuses, I just want to give us an opportunity uh, to affirm the, uh, the leadership and example of the elders that serve at our campuses. Can we do that right now? Yeah. Yeah, shepherds, we're... We're grateful for you. We're grateful for your example and your care and how you seek to live this out. And when we see leaders that posture themselves this way, not to, not to uh, use or over, overextend their authority, but to humble themselves in service, then it becomes easier to do what Peter asks others in the church to do, especially those who are younger, to submit to their elders. Now, again, maybe some of us hear that word submit. This isn't the first time we've heard it in Peter's epistle. And it may give us a little like, okay, yellow flag, red flag coming up. But, but seen rightly in context, to humble ourselves under the spiritual leadership and care of those who are seeking to set an example of humility means that it results in what Peter says next. He says, all of you live with humility. And here's, here's why I think this is so key. Hope and humility are two sides of the same coin. You look in this passage, there's a lot of hope here. There's a hope in a chief shepherd, Jesus, who will return someday to care for all of the flock. And, and when you are an elder who believes in that Jesus who is returning, your hope will lead you to serve out of humility for the season you're called to be a shepherd. Hope and humility are two sides of the same coin. When you are someone who has put your hope in a God who opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble, man, if your hope is in that God, then it will lead you to humble yourself even against your own inner instincts or how you would like to be seen a certain way or or puff up in pride. You humble yourself because you hope in a God who will show you favor. If we hope in the God who has his mighty hand to lift people up, then we will lower and humble ourselves, believing at the time God appoints, he will lift us up. And by the way, the greatest example of this by far is Jesus Christ. Jesus, well, it makes me think of this this passage in Philippians 2. Paul is writing and, and he's talking about some similar issues of humility and how we treat each other. And he just goes off with these song lyrics that are sometimes called the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. Where he says, we should have the same attitude and mindset of Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is how low Jesus went for you and me. In humility, in service, and sacrifice, Jesus humbled himself to the point of dying, not for his sins, because Jesus was sinless, but to die for our sins. And then to be put in the grave. And yet the story doesn't end there. After Jesus had humbled himself to the point of death, Philippians 2 continues and says, therefore God exalted him to the right hand so that he now has the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. See, Jesus humbled himself so much that when God lifted him up, there's a word that says someday the world will humble itself before Jesus. That's how much he humbled himself. He is our example to live this way. And because we see how he has humbled himself and associated with us to save us, we can do what Peter says next. In verse 7, he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In chapter 5, we've got a couple firsts. We have the first time that church leaders are mentioned, and then a few verses later, here we have the very first time in his letter that Peter has acknowledged and referenced the devil. Now, if you're newer to the Christian faith, there's something I want to be super clear about. For Christians, evil is not just an impersonal force. People can do evil things. They can choose to commit evil actions. That's true. But evil is not just the ethical opposite of good. From a Christian worldview, there is a spiritual enemy who perpetuates and cultivates evil in God's world. And that's the devil. And by the way, this is not a fringe part of the Christian faith. Every New Testament writer makes reference to the devil. And Jesus references or refers to the devil some 25 times across the four gospels in his various teachings and conversations. This is just part of what Christians believe because we believe God is wanting us to understand how the world really works. Which is why... The Apostle Paul would say, our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Man, we're, we're not going to overly focus on people who are maybe making evil choices or doing evil things. Yes, we'll pray and work for justice, but we're going to see that as the, the Apostle Paul said, man, it's not just flesh and blood, but it's against these, these rulers, powers, authorities, in the spiritual realm. And that's the devil. Now, I recognize that in today's world, this may be, and you might, you might even be part of this church. And when you think about the devil, you're like, oh, yeah, like, I mean, you know, it's something, something I don't think about a lot, or it's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual concept that doesn't really come to mind very often. And here, it makes me think about this, this quote from um, 
C.S. Lewis, he, he kind of talks about two, two pitfalls when we think about, about the devil or about demons. And he says, one of those pitfalls is to disbelieve in their existence. And let's be, let's be real. A lot of people have kind of gone, that is an ancient spiritual myth kind of just conveying the idea of evil, but the devil's not real. And that's one pitfall. But the other, C.S. Lewis says, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in the devil, like the devil's in everything. So on the one hand, there's the person who goes, ah, the devil's, that's all made up. That's not real. You can just take the ethical stuff out of Christianity and how you're supposed to treat people and, and leave it at that. But all the other spiritual stuff, that's not real. And on the other hand, there's that person, and maybe, maybe you know this person. Maybe, maybe you've, you're friends with this person or they're in your family. You have that family member that like everything is over-spiritualized? You know, they can't find a parking spot and they're like, the devil's working against me right now. You know, the Wi-Fi cuts out and there's like, there's demons in the air, you know, like it. And so we don't want to over-spiritualize, but we don't want to get to the place where we so minimize this truth in scripture that we forget there is an enemy at work in the world. One of the things that is such an honor to do as a minister in this church is to get to talk with people and pray with people in different, in different hard seasons. Sometimes that's in, when they're in, experiencing conflict. Sometimes it's during tragedy. But in, in various times, it's an honor to sit and pray with people and talk with them, to, to do some of what Peter says and cast our cares on the Lord. And I'll sometimes ask a question. I'll say, in this scenario in your life, in this conflict, in this struggle, um, who's part of the equation in your mind? And they'll often talk about God. Maybe because they, they're wondering why God would let this happen. Maybe because they're angry with God. Maybe because they feel like God doesn't really love them or won't really forgive them. And they'll talk about other people, other people that they've been in conflict with, other people who have hurt them, other people that they have hurt. But then I'll ask, in, in the equation for how you think about your life, is there, is there any possibility that you might be under spiritual attack? And for a lot of people, that's something that they just, they just don't think about. Now, I don't, I don't say that to try and scare anybody, but I say that with the intent that Peter has here, which is to make us aware that it's a real thing, that the devil is real. And Peter, the guy writing this, he knows what it's like to be talking to Jesus and have Jesus name the reality of the devil in a very personal way. In Luke 22, Peter was, was talking with Jesus and trying to tell him how he was going to stay faithful in following him. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter knows what it's like to look at Jesus and have Jesus say, Peter, you don't realize that Satan is after you. And I think from that same motivation, Peter wants the church, he wants followers of Jesus to know, but not to make us scared, but to make us aware so that we can do what he says in verse nine. Resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Yeah, Jesus at one point may have told Peter that Satan is after you, but Jesus also told Peter that the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. And so when Peter is letting us know about this spiritual reality of an enemy who is against us and who wants to track us down and isolate us and deceive us, he says, resist, stand firm. 
So here's what that means. That means that the family of faith stands against the devil. The family of faith may kneel before our God, but we stand against the devil. We, we, may, we may bow before Jesus, our King, but we stand against the enemy. And we're able to do that because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We don't do that. We don't stand in our own strength. We don't resist in our own strength or our own willpower. We do that from a spiritual empowerment because the spirit of God is in us. And therefore, we can actually resist. We can actually stand. And Peter says, by the way, do you realize there are people all around the world going through this? Now, in his letter, he's talked a lot about suffering. He's talked a lot about struggles. He's, he's talked a lot about persecution. And now he makes this reference to this is like, this is bigger than just you. And when I first read that, like, I, I, I kind of, I, I got what he was saying. But another part of me was like, is it really that encouraging to be told when you're experiencing great suffering? Like, wait, well, hey, you know, you're not the only one. But, but then this, this week, I actually got to see in person what Peter put on paper in a powerful way that marked me. So this last week, my wife and I were, were out of town all week, and we were, uh, for, for much of the week, we were at a retreat. It was a pastor's retreat, about 120 pastors gathering from around the country to encourage each other and continue to, to kind of spur each other on in serving. And this has been planned for months. And of all places, the retreat was held in the city of Nashville, Tennessee. So we were in the city when we saw the news update the tragedy at Covenant School. At one point, we were headed to go meet somebody, uh, a friend in town for, for a meal. We were just following GPS, weren't exactly sure where we were, and all of a sudden, we passed right by the entrance to the school and the church. And we saw this array of flowers and people who were holding vigil. Then when we got to where the retreat was, it happened to be at a sister congregation of Covenant Presbyterian. That's, that's where the tragedy occurred. And we were at Christ Presbyterian Church for this retreat. And their Christ Presbyterian senior pastor was part of the retreat with us, and he got up and briefly shared some of what the week had been like up to that point. Their church had held a vigil early in the week, and he told us that their church was probably going to host a few of the funerals that would happen in the very building where we were having the retreat. And then one of the, one of the leaders for the retreat just asked, he said, hey, before we continue, if, you, if you're a minister, a pastor here in the Nashville area, or any, anywhere in this little region, would you, would you just stand? So we're in this room of 120 people from all around the country, but then we watch as just a smattering of, of women and men stand around the room. You could see in their, on their faces the grief they're holding for their city, for the families, for fellow believers. You could see the, uh, in their body posture the, the, the burden they were carrying for people in their church who were asking questions and grieving and shocked and hurt as we all were. And then they invited us to just get up and to, for those from other places to, to come up to these brothers and sisters in Nashville and put our hands on them and pray over them. And we prayed and we cried. And later that night, 
as I thought about this passage, I thought, that's the picture. Imagine a room, not just with people from around the country, but a a room that could represent Christians from around the world. And then imagine the persecuted church being asked to stand. And we could look and we could see sisters and brothers in Christ who are serving in parts of the world where their families are under threat of violence because they are followers of Jesus, and yet still they are professing the gospel and spreading the good news. And imagine being able to walk over and put your hand on the shoulder of a persecuted brother or sister in Christ and pray for them because they're not alone. Imagine seeing missionaries and Bible translators who are working to reach some of the the most remote people groups who are unreached and have never heard the name Jesus. And imagine seeing them in that room stand. And they serve in places where pretty much their family or their team are the only in-person Christian community they get. And they serve in remote places, often with limited resources and a lot of cultural and linguistic barriers. And imagine seeing them stand and being able to walk over and put your hand on them and pray for them because they are not alone. Oh man, this, this is the picture when Peter says, you realize this is happening all over the world? And so as the family of faith, we stand against the devil and against the way he tries to deceive and perpetuate evil in the world. And Peter wants us, his language is, be alert and of sober mind. Don't fall asleep to this spiritual reality. Don't get back into the the routine and humdrum of your daily life and forget. Be alert and of sober mind. And if you've been tracking in this series, you know that's language he's used a couple times, this alert and sober mind. He said in chapter four, he said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, when I think about that, In this passage in chapter five, I feel like there's this important connection between prayer and spiritual warfare. That we pray and contend against the powers and against the devil. But all of that comes on the heels of what Peter says when he uses the same language in chapter one. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. Man, if you're taking notes, Christians take their stand and find their hope in the grace of God. That's where Peter starts and that's where he's going to to lead us to finish, that this is where we take our stand. This is where we find our hope, in God's grace. Now, I I don't take my stand on on, on my ability or the church's ability to to do everything right because Lord knows we don't do everything right and Lord knows we are not able in our own power. I don't don't take my stand or find my hope in in my ability to to follow all the rules and have be morally upright before God. No, come judgment day, I will not be taking my stand in what I have done, but in what Jesus has done for me. We don't take our stand or find our hope in our ability to have all the answers because Lord knows after a week like this, I do not have the answers. 
but I know where I can put my hope and I know where I find grace. So Peter writes and says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We may be weak, but God's grace will prove us strong. We may waver, but God's grace will prove us firm. We may struggle, but God's grace will prove us steadfast. It is all grace, church. It's all grace. From beginning to end, stem to stern, it's all grace that leads us to Easter Sunday and the hope of resurrection. It's all grace that promises the chief shepherd will return for his flock and defeat the devil and death and set all things right. It's all grace that there is new mercy every morning for you and you and I can't outsend this awesome grace of God. It is all grace. And so Peter As he's beginning to wrap up, he says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. That's where we stand. In the grace of God that has results well, that are far beyond what we could have ever imagined or earned. Peter's language is this in chapter one, verse nine, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, when we embrace this faith in the God who graced us with salvation, we can affirm this mercifully inverted statement The end result we receive isn't the one that we've earned, but the one God Almighty conceived. He, the Father, He, the Giver, who set the messianic stage to orchestrate in sovereignty all of the Hebrew promises that were made. The prophetic imagination compiles and composes the bright and morning star, one who would lead like Moses, the root of Jesse, the lion of Judah, the prince of peace, a servant known by suffering, who walks with healing in his wings from David's line, the rightful king. Oh, the seers saw him in part, but Jesus came to earth so that we could see God's own heart. He, the Son, He, the Savior, God made flesh, the incarnate Creator, the walking great I Am. Jesus was as common as a carpenter, but as spotless as a lamb, a man who amazed the masses when He taught and when He healed. He felt everything we feel, every temptation just as real, but still, He fulfilled the prophetic plot, doing what we could not, sinless on his road to the cross, speaking forgiveness as they shouted and mocked. He died for all our sins and reclaimed what we had lost. Because the end result we receive isn't the one that we've earned, but the one for which Jesus was willing to bleed. 
So the one conceived by the Spirit in a virgin's womb was then laid to rest in a rich man's brand new tomb. But after three days, when the stone rolled away and they found no one in that grave, then everything changed. Jesus won freedom for prisoners, forgiveness for sinners, a home for exiles, sons and daughters reconciled by their loving Father. Yes, Jesus faced our judgment, made our payment, and then left the tomb vacant. That's why we praise and thank Him, because the end result we receive isn't the one that we've earned, but the one in Christ we believe. We, the sinners, we, the saved, who wade into waters of faith and grace to inherit what will never fade. Oh, Jesus won for us an inheritance. No enemy can spoil, no thief can steal, no grave can rot, no plot, no plan, no demon, no man can lay one hand on heaven's holy supply. No lie, my hope is with the most high. That means my hope is secure and my hope is alive. Yes, God's grace is the basis of my faith and belief because the end result we receive isn't the one that we've earned, but the one Jesus Christ achieved. Amen, amen. Stand to your feet. Let's worship our God together, the God of all grace. Sing to Him, church.